millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes, and uh, I don't even know what else to say every time I do that. But it just sounds to say Forbes is just leaves us all hanging. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm Dan Roth, <laughs> and I'm Sam Abu Al Samad from uh, Southeast Michigan and Navigant Research and a bunch of other places. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives, currently in Newport Beach, California, and enjoying being out here. Oh, yeah. Newport Beach sounds <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Why would you go there this time of year? Uh, you know, I'm struggling for sure. It's actually been, the weather's not been great. It's been a little bit cool, a little bit rainy, but uh, but I love being out here. It's It's just fun. Well, both so both you, Rebecca, and you, Sam, have done some some interesting stuff uh, lately. Um, Rebecca, you are at Heels and Wheels, and we'll get back to that. Uh, but Sam, you also you were just at the Belle Isle Grand Prix, so that's cool. Yeah, um, I was there yesterday, and and last week I was actually at uh, Ford City of Tomorrow Symposium in in Los Angeles, which I saw what? all over the social medias and everything else. So that that yeah. seemed pretty interesting too. Yeah, it was, and and the weather was about the same as it has. Sounds like Re- what Rebecca's been experiencing in Newport Beach, where kind of yeah, kind of icky and and you know not so warm and and overcast and uh, even some rain. All of the above. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still it's it's still California, right? So it's still lovely. I mean, yeah. So you yeah. Get, you get you get terrible weather and all the downsides of living in California of high cost of living <laughs> and traffic and. You know, congestion. It, well, the, you, you know, the, co- the cost of living is only high because people want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am currently enjoying the view from the Newport Beach Marriott with a view of the golf course leading out to the Pacific Ocean and Catalina Island. Oh, so, the golf course. That's great. Look at all that destructive monoculture <laughs> washing uh, <laughs> nitrogen-based fertilizer right into the ocean for algae blooms. Yeah. Excellent. I don't, I don't even have to leave my house to see a golf course. I just look out my living room window. It's right there. Well, some of us don't have that. Yeah, I have neighbors that grow but marijuana. You have a big it's rock great. In your office. Yeah. You have a big yes, rock? Exactly. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, Heels and Wheels. It sounds like that was a different kind of event. Yeah, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. So Heels and Wheels, this is about the sixth iteration, I believe. Um, it's done by Christine Overstreet and her company. And it was it's really a gathering of a combination of women journalists, automotive journalists, and influencers. And it was a nice 
set a, a mix of, of, of women. Uh, and one of the things that I really, I'd never been before. So this is my first time. It was up in Santa Monica. And one of the things I really liked about it was that it was just a very positive atmosphere of, of new car, being able to see the new cars, being able to test drive them uh, in, and in the context of talking to them about how we use these vehicles in our daily life. And like cars.com did a really interesting presentation on uh, how, you know, women look at vehicles and, and, you know, the, the buying process of women and how that is different. Uh, we also had presentations by Mazda. They were a big sponsor and Nissan. And the funny thing was that uh, FCA sponsored the breakfast and, they actually, they brought a minivan and everyone's like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but <laughs> the reason they brought the minivan was because they have this fabulous uh, Macedonian original uh female engineer named uh, Alexandra, and I'm not even going to try her last name. And this woman is just totally badass. And she actually has been working on their hybrid powertrain for about 15 years now. And she's just absolutely fabulous. And so to hear her talk about her career at FCA, how she's progressed, how she's moved through the ranks. She's now the global, uh, I have to get her exact title, the global head of um of hybrids and, and just a really powerful woman. And she, and she was a lot of fun. Uh, so it was, it was just great to hear from her, to hear from some of the, the women in the industry. And then Haggerty was actually another big sponsor of this event. And they actually provided three different classic cars. They did a 1971 Ford Bronco, which I got a chance to drive. Uh, they had a Mustang there and they had a Fiat Spider as well. And the woman that they had there, Tabitha she actually went to a college called McPherson, which is the only college in the U.S. that has a degree in automotive restoration. Yeah, that's a pretty well-known program. That's It's yeah. great that they – I think Haggerty funds that or sponsors that too. Right, they do. And so, again, there was just a tremendous amount of authenticity uh, to the women that they brought to this event. And and it, it was great. It was We got a chance to drive a bunch of cars. Aston Martin was there with their Superleggera, which, of course, is just to die for. <laughs> and uh, I got a chance to drive the Jaguar F-Pace. Uh, I was in the Range Rover Evoque, which I hadn't driven before. And I really, really liked that the vehicle new one? a lot. The new one, yes. Yeah. And then they also, uh, Infinity had the Q60 there, mm-hmm. and I hadn't driven that before. I loved that. I think that was probably my favorite vehicle of the day. I don't know if you guys have spent any time in that. The, yeah. the Q60, yeah, that's the one with the, the um, Red the Sport. Yeah. The Q60 Red Sport 400. Okay, that I haven't, I, I, yeah, I haven't driven it in a while. That's the one that has the, uh, the drive-by-wire steering, though, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. Have they improved that at all? <laughs> I, I mean, I granted, I didn't take it for very long. I probably had it for about half an hour of driving around, but I loved it. Yeah. I mean, it had a great exhaust note to it. It was a very, uh, it was a very expressive. I thought it was a very expressive drive. So I, I really yeah, liked it. I, I do recall um, being really impressed with how how it looks, both inside and out. I, I do think that it's a it's a nice design exercise uh and i i can't remember how it drove off the top of my head but uh that's with some of the news we're going to talk about coming up 
I'm I'm nervous for the the future of Infinity because they make some really interesting cars and their their coupes have been some of my favorites. So uh, hopefully they won't go away, but we'll we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, they're they're definitely facing challenges for sure. Yeah. Uh, so all right. Well, maybe we should dive into some topics. Um, we were going to talk about everybody's uh, most hotly anticipated and super excited reaction to the Cadillac CT4V and CT5V. That's um, a little bit of sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a little. Um, And FCA and Renault rumors of a tie up or more than rumors, I guess, that they're they're trying to propose merger. Um, And then the tariffs that are, you know, I guess uh, sort of law by tweet. So, uh, we'll see what our economy does when they finally manage to ruin it with tariffs. But they have a really big implication um, that the new tariffs proposed for uh, goods coming from Mexico. Um, that's a really big problem for the automotive industry. So uh, if it happens, it's going to really take a bite out of auto manufacturers and consumers. So so uh, let's talk about the cars we've been driving. And Sam, you've been in the Lexus UX 250H F Sport, which is a lot of letters. Yes, it is. A lot of letters and some numbers. And um, it's, you know, this is uh, Lexus's new um, smallest of their crossovers, uh, you know, a little bit smaller than the NX, uh, but not a lot smaller. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, we parked, I pulled it, you know, parked it in the driveway and pulled my wife's uh, Civic hatchback next to it. And it's, you know, it's just barely taller than the Civic hatchback. Uh, you know, most of the extra height that it has is actually from the two roof rails rather than from the roof itself. And, you know, it got me wondering, you know, it's like, what what exactly is a crossover supposed to be anymore? Footprint you know, it's, for it's, EPA. It's, it's, it's get, it's, <laughs> except, you know, it's got a shorter wheelbase than, uh, than the Civic, uh, you know, about the same width. You know, so it's actually got a technically a smaller footprint than the Civic. You know, it's it's really basically just a, a very marginally taller, you know, compact hatchback, which is just not, I have no objection to that. You know, if you I guess, you know, whatever you want to call it, call it whatever you want. If people want to buy vehicles like this, then fine. They're really yeah. buying cars. And so, you know, then the reality is that people are actually not shifting away from cars to crossovers because the crossovers they're shifting to are really cars. They're being cars. Uh, yeah. yeah, they are. And, I mean, there's nothing and, wrong and with this, that, you and know. This, like, and this one even has tail fins. It's just like an old Cadillac. Yeah, I I've, I have noticed that about the UX. It's like they're they're bringing back the fin, and so I'm yeah, curious that, for like the next generation if it's going to get larger and more pronounced. <laughs> ah, probably not. Um, my my guess is these are probably actually you know little arrow appendages. I mean, you know, they might be just a pure styling flourish, which would be fine. Uh, but they're probably actually there just to manage the airflow coming off the back of the car. I mean, they're they're fairly small, you know, just about an inch, inch and a half high, uh, you know, tail fins on the on the rear tail lamps. Um, and, you know, it's just a cool little touch. Um, overall, I'm, you know, it looks fine. I, I don't mind the the overall design of the thing. I think the, you know, it's it's a decent uh, implementation of the Lexus spindle grill. You know, one I guess one area where it does differ in design really from the NX is, you know, the front, it's got, you know, the, the, the front fascia kind of goes down deeper. The NX, if you look at it in profile, the, the bumper seems like it's up higher and then it cuts, cuts down. It's got an undercut there. Whereas the, the UX seems like it has more of a, um, 
uh, a deeper front air dam or you know front fascia uh so it, again it makes it look more like a car than a utility uh and the you know, the one i drove was the 250h which is the hybrid uh and it's the f sport and it, there, if you switch, there's a knob on the right-hand side of the instrument cluster that's toggle it between uh, normal, eco, and sport mode. And when I tried sport mode, I noticed something very interesting. It makes quite a bit more noise than it does in uh, in normal or eco mode, but it's all completely synthetic noise. It has, <laughs> it's it's this weird synthesized sort of kind of like an engine sound, trying to make it sound a little sportier. But it ends up just sounding a little weird. You know, it's not it's not a hundred percent in sync with what the what the powertrain's doing. I think there's a real market as we go forward with this kind of nonsense because it's not going to stop. Um, no, where probably not. You could actually make like you know customized download packs, so you can make the car sound like like the Millennium Falcon or a Tie Fighter, if you if you wanted to, just because it's only going to play back over the stereo anyway. Yeah, and you you know you're going to have app stores you know in the car anyway to download stuff, so why not you know download uh, sound packages yeah. for your car? See, I think that's a new revenue stream. You can change uh, all yeah. the, the warning love that sounds. Idea. Yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> Right, I think it's uh, it's a little hokey, but I mean, I'd rather hear the engine. But you know, like let's just fully embrace the fact that there are external noise regs that that keep cars quieter than they used to be. And so, when we want to make them a little bit more thrilling, uh, we have stuff like the little sound actors and and the synthetic stuff that plays uh, over the radio speakers only, because um, otherwise they wouldn't they wouldn't be legal. <laughs> Yeah. to sell uh so yeah, fine we'll we'll go with it um so this is a really hot segment too the the ux is actually it's actually not that big right it's it's kind of a it's a like it's not su- yeah. is it subcompact um i think it's i think it's technically right on the line between a subcompact and a compact i mean it's bigger it's bigger than something like the um the encore um yeah, and like I said, it's it's almost exactly the same size overall as our Civic, so which is a, a compact. So I think technically it's a compact. It's slightly smaller than the NX, but not by a whole lot. It's only a few inches difference, um, and you know it has a one one thing that you know as so many cars today do. You know, it has a high belt line, which I find annoying, um, but you know it's not it's not the worst I've driven, and. It, but it does have that terrible Lexus touchpad interface for the infotainment. <laughs> Please just, just get ditch that, you know, uh, you know, the 2020, R, yeah, the, the refreshed 2020 RX actually adds a touchscreen for the first time. Well, yeah. Um, that's, then that's so, news within the last like week or so. Um, yeah, but this isn't the one with the little mouse, right? This is actually just no. the touchpad. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah. They've got, they've gotten rid of the mouse. The mouse I actually thought worked the, better. The mouse was the okay. Touchpad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the touchpad just is not good. Uh, but you know, other than that, you know, the seats are really good in it. Um, it's very fuel efficient. Uh, you know, got 36 miles per gallon, uh, you know, all in, you know, the, the one I drove, uh, was about 40, just shy of $42,000. Uh, so, you know, for, for the segment, you know, for a Lexus, it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's a decent value. Um, and it's got all wheel, it's all wheel drive with an electric rear axle. Uh, so there's, um, you, it's on demand, all wheel drive, you know, triggering the rear axle, um, through an electric motor. 
Um, you know, and then the front is just, you know, standard Toyota Lexus hybrid system. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a decent little car, you know, and, and the UX, I guess, is actually, you know, for urban utility vehicle. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it really, it, it's a good size for driving in cities, you know, as opposed to driving, trying to drive something like a GX or, you know, one of those other big monsters or the, uh, what, I forget what the other, the other big utility they have. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a decent little vehicle if you're looking for something in this segment. What do you two think of the styling? Well, and the other thing is that it it gets huge fuel economy, especially the hybrid yeah. version. So yeah, I, well, think I, I was I was getting like 36, 37 miles per gallon. Yeah, so I think that that's especially one of the appeals of of the UX is not only the size of it, but you know, it it really uh, cushions you and insulates you from any kind of uh, spikes in gas prices. They, they estimate it. Uh, we had, we had one at this event. I was, I participated in this week, heels and wheels, and they had one there and I got, I got a chance to drive it, but they asked, they provided a book for it and it says 41 city, 38 highway and 39 combined. And I mean, that's pretty fierce fuel economy for something that has a decent amount of cargo space. It's not going to, you're not going to go cross country in it, but it does provide an opportunity for you to throw some friends or you know kids in and a couple and some stuff in the back. On the other hand, our Civic gets thirty-five and has more cargo space and more rear seat room. Yeah, but yeah, it's, but this, it's not it, a Lexus Civic, crossover. I, I mean, no, but but you know the thing is that this is a typical vehicle that is ideal for single women or you know, empty nester kind of thing, but cause it has luxury and I love the civic. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love the civic, but this is a different kind of customer than, than is going after the civic and it has all wheel drive. It's providing women a, a, an additional sense of security. This is a very, very female friendly vehicle. And um, that I think is really important for Lexus. I love, I like the NX a lot too. Um, but the, this UX provi- just is, is just one more option that Lexus can offer women. What so yeah. what what do you what do you two think of the styling? I'm you know I probably wouldn't buy it, but I'm not I'm not terribly offended by it. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't hurt my eyes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I'm, I think I'm, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I mean I'm not a huge Lexus style fan anyway, but I do think that it's Again, for a lot of women, I think it provides a nice level of expressive styling without being uh, really uh, without being polarizing. Yeah. All right. I, I'm looking at it right now in the just the gallery from the consumer site. And, you know, from some angles, it looks really, really interesting. You know, like there's a, mm-hmm. a lot of just nice details in the surfaces and the shapes. And then from other angles, it, it doesn't look so good, <laughs> you know, like just the straight on profile. It's, there's a lot of overhang on the front, but it, it is a front wheel drive car. Oh, it so it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my photos right now, you know, and the, the front overhangs, not that, it's not that excessive. Um, in fact, you know, on the NX, you know, it actually, it, it looks, I think the NX actually looks like it has more overhang because of, you know, when you look at it in profile, you know, the way it comes down, there's more of a, a sloping cut. You know, the the front fascia of the UX goes almost straight down deeper. Yeah. Mm. You know, so it's got more of a car-like profile. 
Um, and I, you know, I think it's, it actually makes it kind of de-emphasizes that overhang, you know, but of course the thing that, the thing that truly makes this uh, a crossover is, you know, the, the matte pla- black plastic, uh, wheel arch extension. Yes, of course. And then they'll come out with like a luxury model too. They'll come out with like the, the premier trim or something that they're, they're, they'll yeah. be painted. Yeah. <laughs> Body oh, color. You guys are so bitter sometimes. Uh, no, we're jaded. We're not, there's a difference. I actually, I really, so you're never really going to look at your car sort of like flat on any, any, any of the sort of views, right? You don't normally look at it like straight head on straight profile. Um, and those are views that tend to really flatten it out. Um, so the other, other views of it, like it looks, it, it's interesting. Like I said, I think it looks really good. I really like the sort of the, the chamfer that it has over that front wheel arch that because mm-hmm. they're kind of a Marcello Gandini look. Yeah. It just immediately throws a, a, a shadow because it's, there's, there's a hard crease there um, before yeah. the wheel arch. And it, it just, it, you know, that kind of stuff we're getting into this age of design where there's lots of lines and, and sort of aggression in, in the design. And certainly that this is, a little bit more aggressive and that's that's lexus's style um than in the past it, it almost looks like a manga version of a car but it, you know I, I think seeing it in person i haven't really paid attention to them um so i'd have to actually see if i've seen one in traffic um i, I want to see it and see how it plays in the real world but I, I can't i can't say that it looks bad it's just certain views i think don't don't flatter it yeah i mean there's certain so angles to what to- oh go ahead rebecca no, I was just going to point out the fact that I think that this vehicle really reminds me of the Infiniti QX30 in a lot of ways. Okay. It's it's a very – it's that same kind of uh, mix uh, between a hatchback and a crossover. Uh, but the QX30 doesn't get nearly the fuel economy that that the, um, the UX does. And again, for a buyer that – that this is targeted for somebody who is a bit more budget conscious, but still wants luxury. That can be a real deal breaker. That can be, I mean, there's a big difference. The, the best it gets is 24 33, which is a big difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you know, the QX, um, uh, it's funny when I did went on the, uh, the drive for the QX a couple of years ago, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I was looking at the specs. It's almost exactly the same size as a Mazda three. And if wow. you, if you get the, the QX 30 sport version, so the, the sport trim actually yeah. sits a little bit lower than the other two versions. <laughs> so it's also exactly the same height as a Mazda three hatchback. That's really so, funny. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Yeah. That's um, the QX is the same as the Mercedes GLA, right? Yes, it's uh, based on it's yes. built by Mercedes and and it's based on the GLA platform. Right, and it, so yeah. the first GLA I had as a media car was a GLA forty five AMG, and I was like, "This is a fantastic hot hatchback," and I realized it's supposed to be like a pseudo crossover. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, well, it, it sucks as the GLA two fifty, but the, the AMG is good." <laughs> but again, this is designed. These I really do believe that these are more um, oriented towards a. a a, diff, a luxury buyer who is, I think, on the more feminine side. That's just my feeling on it. Or at least a smaller household. No, I think I'll agree with that. And I think that if you were to look around and see the majority of people who are driving an NX even, um, it, it probably does. And, and even if they are X, like those have been popular with, with women. And there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, dudes, we have our own cars. 
hey, <laughs> right. they're, 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 big, they're a bigger market than men are. I mean, there's more, more, yep. more female car buyers than male car buyers. So it's, definitely you know, more influence as well. Yeah, that's right. They, they influence uh, the male car buyers as well. If you're yes. buying as a family situation. Um, so yeah, it's, you just stepped out of that, Sam, and into the uh, into another hybrid right. uh, utility vehicle. Well, this one's but, a PHEV, so that's it's a little yeah. different. Yeah, so I, I got into uh, the Range Rover plug-in hybrid, which was uh, introduced at the uh, was it at, yeah in, at New York, the New York Auto Show, uh, and it, you know it's you know, it's a Range Rover. You know, if you've uh, seen any Range Rover since 1970, you will immediately recognize this as a Range Rover, but you know, a modern one, uh, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's a good classic look, although, you know, the, the fake plastic vents on the, on the front fenders, uh, you know, I think they could probably <laughs> lose those. Um, but aside from that, you know, the rest of it, you know, it, it's a, it's a good look, you know, for a big, tall luxury sport utility vehicle and Range Rovers have some serious off-road chops. I mean, these things can go anywhere pretty much, you know, I mean, this, this is pretty much, you know, if you put the right tires on it, you know, this thing could probably, you know, follow a Jeep Wrangler just about anywhere. Um, but this is the first plug-in hybrid version. Uh, it uses the two-liter uh, Ingenium four-cylinder turbo that you can find in a lot of Jaguars and other uh, Land Rover products, uh, paired with a 14-kilowatt-hour battery pack and an electric motor. Um, unfortunately, during the the time I had it, the the one the this vehicle doesn't go on sale here till the fall, and. Uh, so this is a pre-production model, and it also had a pre-production charging cable. And so uh, I had some issues. Uh, apparently, I guess um, when you plug it in, uh, it sends out a, a the the charger sends out a signal to the circuit, you know, to to check for ground and make sure everything's got you know properly grounded before it starts charging. And you know, and it's for safety reasons. Uh, but I guess there's some calibration issues with some of the pre-production cables. And, um, so every time I plug this one in, in, in the garage, it would trip the GFCI outlet, uh, immediately. And so I could not actually charge it at home. I did take it to a local charge point charger, uh, public charger charging station and it worked just fine. Uh, but I didn't stay long enough to give it a full charge. But, um, I guess in Europe on the, the NEDC cycle, these things are um, rated at about 30 miles of electric range, and that's a that's a pretty optimistic cycle. So, you know, it'll probably get somewhere in the low 20s uh, for the when it's certified uh, by EPA. But you know, pretty much every you know, if you've driven any Range Rover, you know, in recent years, you will be immediately familiar with this thing. You know, both inside and out. You know, it's very luxurious inside, beautiful leather. Every, you know, great fit and finish. Everything's you know put together really nicely. Um, the the pretty much the only real complaint I have about the interior is the the screens that uh, Jaguar Land Rover uses in in most of their vehicles now, which are a bit too glossy, and uh, they're also the type of display that if you're wearing polarized sunglasses like I do when it's when it's sunny out. Uh, you get some distortion and that kind of rainbow effect that you get on L certain LC LCD screens uh, when you look at them at an angle through polarized glasses, and so that's you know that's kind of annoying. Uh, and uh, but it does have support for Android Auto and CarPlay now, uh, as all other JLR products are are starting to do. Um, 
and even even though I didn't charge it most of the time uh, that I had it, uh, even you know just driving it as a hybrid with a two liter four cylinder, it was still getting twenty four miles per gallon. Which for that's you know, pretty good big, for something so enormous. Three, a, th- a three ton luxury SUV, you know, is very impressive. Well, and it's yeah. it's combined output is almost four hundred horsepower. So yeah, th- that's and, not well, bad. Even, even yeah, even the four cylinder, you know, the the engine alone is is th- is rated at three hundred horsepower. So this is a pretty powerful setup, you know, and it's got you know even for a big vehicle like this, it's you know it has no problem accelerating. So <laughs> you know, I think uh, you know by the by the time it goes on sale this fall, I, I think uh, I think it should be a, a an excellent choice for a lot of uh, wealthy consumers. Very. And that's one wealthy. that's getting thirty one miles in range. Is that there? Is that the uh, Sport PHEV or the? the this is this is the this is the standard Range Rover, not the Sport. Oh, uh, okay. Although although both both will have the same powertrain. Um, okay. It's it's rated in the in Europe on the uh, the European drive cycle. It's rated at about thirty miles of range. So it'll probably be somewhere in the low twenties uh, when it's certified here. So okay. you but don't that's still pretty good. You can get to and yeah. from the office for a lot of people. Oh yeah. You know, without I mean that's. You know, it's a good commute you kind don't, of arrangement. You don't find any irony at all in the idea <laughs> of an electric Range Rover, given the history <laughs> of British cars I, I, and electric. I, 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 I've, now, I've, now, I've now gone through uh, a couple of different uh, plug-in uh, electric vehicles, particularly from Jan- Jaguar Land Rover. You know, I drove the I-Pace back in January or in December out in California. Yeah, yeah. And I, I commented on this in the video I did with Leo Laporte. You know that it. You know, yes, it is rather ironic that a company that. Uh, had such a sterling reputation for electrical <laughs> system reliability with its Lucas electrical systems, uh, you know, should now be building plug-in electric vehicles. Um, but you know, so far, you know, aside from the the charging cable issue, uh, you know, and this is you know still a prototype part, um, you know, everything else was fine, everything worked, and you know, it's funny. Back when they launched the when Jaguar launched the XF in what about two thousand eight or so. Yeah, that first generation XF. When I got in that thing and pressed the start button, you know, and saw the oh yeah, the, the shifter rising up out of the console, and that's the same. They have and the, the vents rotating, and the vents rotating around. I'm thinking to myself, this is this is an English car, a British <laughs> car, you know, um, with British electrical systems. You know, how how is that going to be? Well, you know, yeah, six, to, to, now, you to, know, to be fair. To be fair, the XF was probably a British car with German electrical systems at uh, that point. Yes, it, pro- it probably was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a good joke. But overall, uh, how similar is this powertrain to the I-Pace? Is it similar at all? Does it share? Oh, the I-Pace is a pure battery electric no, vehicle. No, I know. But did they basically like take that that sort of uh, architecture and plop it in no, here with an engine? It's completely different. So this, uh, this one, you know, it's a uh, – Front engine, you know, longitudinal engine um, with uh, an eight-speed automatic transmission, and the motor is sandwiched between the engine and the transmission uh, where the torque converter would go. So it's 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 a completely different layout. Um, there's really nothing in common between this and the I-Pace. Okay, I it's a little weird question. Just looking at it, going, did they learn anything and then bring it over? I'm sure they learned stuff. And and well, yeah, I, I think. You know, I think they've they've learned a lot about doing electrical systems in the last fifteen years. You know, especially under, uh, you know, during the time that they were owned by Ford, 
you know, I think they, they got past a lot of that stuff. That's, that's true. It's some of that, uh, I think that Jaguar was like Ford's first luxury purchase and they, they fixed a lot of problems yeah. being under Ford. Um, all right. Well, so when you hit it big in the lottery, it sounds like that's uh, going to be high in your list of, uh, of choices. Yeah, I mean, you know, this thing will be, you know, priced somewhere north of a hundred thousand dollars when it comes out. I think, uh, they haven't announced pricing yet, but you know, it, it won't be cheap, but, uh, you know, it's, if you're, if you're looking for, you know, a big luxury SUV, you know, that gets decent fuel economy. Yeah, you know, this is one to consider. Okay. Uh, so and if- I'm, looking, I'm looking at this site. Oh, it just flashed. Is that the uh, the Range Rover PHEV HSE? Is that uh, what was? The 2.0 liter plug-in hybrid electric, because they've got a price of 95000 Oh, they have the pricing now? Okay. Ninety-five, uh, nine fifty. Yeah. Bargain. So- yeah, so the, yeah, this, this was an HSE, the P four hundred E. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's coming in this summer. Okay, when I when I looked at it before, they they didn't have the pricing posted yet. Well, you yeah, know, it's under the future vehicles. They're going to okay. be thick on the ground in Greenwich, I'm sure. Yes, they are. And, <laughs> and I, I'm in Southern California, yeah. where I am as well. <laughs> you know, if if you're not if you're not driving a Tesla, you're definitely going to be driving a Range Rover. Okay, that's true. It's well, it's, well, and. I'm sorry. So to that point, I actually also I drove the Range Rover Evoque mild hybrid, the 2.0 liter with the inline four cylinder. And that was really nice. I drove that. This that has a 48 volt, 296 horsepower mild hybrid powertrain. Have you guys spent any time in that? Uh, not yet. I have one scheduled uh, later in June. So I'll, I'll have one in a few weeks, but uh, okay. I, haven't, I haven't driven it yet. But I've, I've driven the, the Wrangler with that two liter, 48 volt mild mm-hmm. hybrid system. Yeah, and it's it's a very good setup. Works yeah. really well. Huh. Well, when you want something that looks like a million bucks but costs a little less, um, <laughs> Rebecca, you were driving the uh, the Kia Telluride. Um, I was driving and, the Kia Telluride, and I so I also had that uh, a couple weeks ago b- before we <laughs> after the last podcast. I don't think I've talked about it, but. Uh, did you find that it generated lots and lots of sort of questions and conversation when you had it? Well, remember, I live in Southern Connecticut and nobody talks to each other. That's, but that's, that's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it definitely garnered a lot of looks. Yeah. And I did, I was, uh, I drove it down to, uh, to, towards the Jersey shore. And I was at a rest stop over Memorial day weekend. And there were definitely a lot of people that came over, wanted to look at it. Um, I had actually bought some really cool pottery from somebody. And so there she, she and I were putting it into the back and this guy came over to help us out. And then he like ended up crawling all through the vehicle. Was it the cheese? Really curious. Was it the cheese quake? Uh, Rest up on the parkway. Yes, that one, no, 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 it was cheesecake. It, it wasn't cheesecake. Me. It was just it was the Monmouth. Oh, okay. Was, well, you were a little further down. Did you go see the horse races? <laughs> yes, yes. When the girl told me about it, I thought she misspelled cheesecake. I was like, "What is this cheesequake thing?" No, on? that's actually it's one of the stops. Um, <laughs> it is one of the stops. Yeah, so but, we we also yes. took it on on a long uh, voyage. We went actually down to see some family in Connecticut and and drove it back. So we drove it, you know couple hundred miles yeah uh, likewise it's a fantastic family vehicle it's, it's really well thought out it it was so nice and i actually did a turn and burn so i drove almost two hours down 
I was at the rest stop for less than half an hour and two hours back. And I was not tired. The seats were incredibly comfortable. Everything about it, I just, I loved that vehicle. And 46860 with destination, right. which is $1,000. I mean, that's just a deal and a half. Yeah, so did you, crazy. Did you have the SX? Yes, yeah. I have the SX V6 all-wheel drive. So that's the top that's the top trim. Yeah. There's and it has the two thousand dollar um the prestige package as well. So the heads up display, right. the Napa leather, the heated and ventilated second row seats. Yeah. So it, it was it was tricked out. Right. And you look at that and you go, wait, how are they doing this for this price? Yeah. It, you look around first the the design is really impressive because it it just it looks expensive, both inside it and does. out. It's a very careful it's gorgeous. Yeah, like very careful choices of materials and trim yep. and um it just it's really it seems well put together and underneath it all you know it's just it's this sort of new look for for kia and it doesn't necessarily mean that anything else is going to share this look uh kia seems pretty comfortable letting each each of its models sort of have its own life mm-hmm. um this is essentially a stretched sorrento that they have beefed up and they made it a little bit longer, but it's, it's not that it's unproven hardware. You know, the 3.8 liter V6 has been around a while. It's their in-house transmission. It's uh, everything is sort of stuff they already had. So they, they picked up and tweaked it and restyled it basically, but it looks like this all new thing. That's just super impressive to, to behold. I don't, I was very impressed with the, the, um, the Telluride. So for contrast, I this the week that I'm out here in California, um, GM was kind enough to give me a Cadillac Escalade ESV. <laughs> so this thing is gigantic. It is supersized for sure, and it's like ninety seven, ninety eight thousand dollars. And I would be hard pressed to really, you know, I think the only thing that the Telluride was missing is the cooler, which we did transport a six pack of beer in last night. Uh, so that was kind of a fun thing for the Escalade, but I, I just, this Telluride was really, really impressive. I got 25 miles to the gallon, uh, in, you know, and that was, that was right. That was, it was 25.5 for that trip. Uh, let me see exactly how long it was 186 miles, three and a half hours. And I averaged 25.5 miles per gallon. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. a little in better the than you ride. Yeah, in the tell you ride. In the tell you ride. Yeah, if it was in the Cadillac, I'd be amazed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that Cal- that Cadillac though. Oh my gosh! Last night I was accelerating onto the I five, and all of a sudden I looked down. And I was going ninety eight miles an hour. <laughs> they, I mean, that thing has some serious power. <laughs> I love a small block V eight. <laughs> exactly. It was yeah. amazing. But um, but no, this tell you ride, I. It, it's it's incredible, and I love it. It's made out of the West Point, Georgia. It's just it, it's really I think it's really real, really well suited for for the U.S. for families, and I it drives so much smaller than it looks. And and again, I I just I went over the George Washington Bridge. I mean, I was in some hardcore traffic coming back because again Memorial Day weekend, but. 
I never felt like I was hauling this big ass vehicle around. Like it felt really nimble. It felt very, very steady, very secure. It wasn't top heavy. I just, I cannot say enough about it. It was amazing. Yeah. That was one of the questions that I had too, from someone was like, does it drive big? And no, it was surprising actually how easy it is to park, how maneuverable it feels. Cause it, it, yeah. it is pretty, pretty large. Um, I, I did find like we actually used all three rows. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, we, we put the dog in the back, but <laughs> still, he's a person. Um, <laughs> so access to that third row is never going to be that great in anything like this. Even even that Escalade, for example, like it's just right. it's yeah. the nature it's like- of. Yeah, if you need three rows, let's just get a minivan and be done. Um, but it's about as good as it can be here where the second row seats will slide forward and there's, there's enough of a passage because they've made it a little larger than the Sorrento, which has a third row as well, but it's a very occasional third row. Um, you know, it, it overall, like as a, as a family SUV with, you try to think of the competition, even I'm I'm trying to like an Explorer An Explorer is going to be possibly more expensive to get it fully loaded at, you know, then, then 47 K. Um, it's it, totally, I mean, that was the thing is it just, it, it's, it was absolutely packed with everything you could possibly want in that thing. Oh, and my Android auto worked absolutely seamlessly, which is not always the case. Even in the Cadillac, the Cadillac, it just stopped working. People have told me that it's my cord that might be the issue. And I believe them, but it, it worked seamlessly. It just, it was, yeah. it was really impressive. Yeah, I I was quite impressed with it as well. So uh, that that one seems to to be this like it's not even really a sleeper. It really stands out on the road. So it's just it's another kind of effort from Kia that's going to, I think, get a lot more attention and, and sell pretty well. It'll be interesting to see. I think I'm driving the Palisades in a couple of weeks. Sam, are you on that event? Uh, no, I can't make it to that one, uh, but I'm going to be doing a, they're doing a regional drive here in Michigan, uh, in early July. So I'm going to drive it then. Okay. So that'll be really interesting to see how that, how that is. How they're different. And just, right. And just for, for reference and the Ford Explorer, the platinum, which is the top of the line, $58,000. Yeah. That's so not worth it. Yeah, start starting oh, wait. starting price for the Explorer is thirty seven for that's, an SLT. That's yeah. the new Explorer or the old yeah, Explorer? That's the, the 2020. The 20, 20, yeah, the okay. new one. So yeah. in Ford's defense, uh we haven't driven that Explorer yet, and I bet it's going to drive yeah. quite well. Um, oh yeah. I, I I'm sure it will. Yeah. I'll I'll be out on the West Coast the week after next to drive that. See, so we'll pump you for information when you come back if you can talk about yeah. it. <laughs> oh yeah. Um all right, so from the Telluride, I jumped into the very next week. A $140,000 Mercedes-Benz <laughs> G550, uh, which is a really interesting contrast because the Telluride is equipped nicely. They've, they've spent the money on, you know, finishes and materials. It has, you know, the the flocked A-pillars and stuff. So it feels very luxurious. And then you get into something that's like true old school luxury and you're like, OK, so this is obviously <laughs> better. But it's not that much better that it's twice the price it's, better. It's, it's- it's not a hundred thousand dollars better. No, yeah, it's three times the price. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The G five fifty is incredible, uh, and it's 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 had a lot of work done to it. Like it looks 
like the same one that came out in the late seventies. It's, it's not like, I, I don't know if they've fully redone the frame, but there's been a yeah, lot it's, of it's, work. It's all, it's all new this year or yeah. last year. 2019. Yeah. It's totally different than it used to be. It does stuff. It's not supposed to do because it's okay. At first it costs as much as a house and driving it is kind of like driving your shed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it'll do things like, go around corners at kind of a brisk rate of speed. And it, it doesn't, it's not terrifying um, when it do that. And it has an independent front axle now um, that I don't think it had before. I think it had solid axles. Um, but either way, like the, the suspension engineering on this is super impressive because I expected it to be much more sloppy or just not as capable as it is. And it, it just, it just, it goes down the road in a very composed manner, which damn well should for $140,000. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the interior, uh, they've, I can't, the last time I was in a G class was, uh, almost 10 years ago and it was nice, but this new interior is amazing. And, and, you know, it really does feel like a handmade vehicle cause it kind of, kind of is. Um, it's got a lot of that sort of craftsmanship that's on display. The materials are really impressive and the you know just the you look at the the way the body's assembled and stuff it's just it's a very impressive bit of craft from from mercedes i just don't get why the the popular use around here for a g-class is to drop the kids off at the expensive suburban school uh i don't ever see them off-road and i i also didn't take this off-road i didn't want to get it stuck in the uh the worcester county hills out here but uh it has you probably wouldn't have got it stuck that's that's true uh it has g mode which is um it has three lockable differentials which is like the mark of a serious serious off-roader um i also felt like it didn't have the right tires i was like i'm i'm really not i don't want to get in trouble with this thing (laughs) (laughs) uh and you know it's just if you're looking to be impressed uh yes it's expensive but it's one of those few vehicles that really feels like for the price you get at least every bit of of value out of that price like it seems like it's worth it and you're possibly like getting more value than than you're paying for that seems a little insane to say but just what this thing can do and like how comfortable you are while you're doing it is is sort of uh the takeaway from from the g-class um I, I don't know that I would recommend it as a SUV. <laughs> it, it works. Uh, we we certainly used it that way. Um, it does feel a little ridiculous, especially the one I had. It it was purple, um, <laughs> and, and it had uh, a, a polished brush guard on the front and the the spare tire cover that looks like it came off a conversion van. So clearly I'm not the demographic for this because I, I don't agree with the aesthetic choices. I don't like the new, the new fascia that it's got. I think the, the, the front lights look kind of goofy. Um, whereas the old ones I think look really classy. Um, but it's overall, like it's in a different color. It would be understated. It certainly, uh, it has that, uh, that old world sort of, uh, bends thing where the doors just snick shut. They, they require kind of a hard pull, but they, the latches have that sound that they actually talk about it in the press release that that has this um, distinctive click sound. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's something you guys engineered into it. Um, so yeah, I mean, the G class uh, feels like it should for 
the kind of money and the the reputation that it has. So, it was, but it was also a nice contrast with the Telluride. You go, you know, you could save a lot of dough if you wanted fuzzy A pillars. <laughs> you could just go with the Telluride. But but but, but it's not an AMG G sixty three. No, no, the G five fifty. You don't need the AMG. Not at all. No. Uh, there's plenty. It's not of a matter of need. That's that's true. It's not a matter I of. Mean, if, if you're going to spend 140 grand on an SUV, you might as well, you know, drop another, t- you know, eight grand, you know, and get the AMG. Oh, it's only eight grand more. That's such a bargain. <laughs> yeah, it starts it starts at 147,500. Yeah, I mean, and it has a, it has an, a handcrafted AMG four liter V8 bi turbo engine. So. Well, so does the 550, and, I think. No, it's not a handcrafted and, AMG and, engine. Oh, and you get the badging. Don't forget the AMG badging. Yes. Right, which True. is super important. Um, and different wheels. Important. Different like, wheels. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you, yeah, these must be thick on the ground down in, in uh, southwestern Connecticut, too. They are everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere out here by, by Boston. Um, and they, yeah. there's a line of them at the snotty schools to pick up. The, oh, yes, and Whole Foods yeah. and SoulCycle. Right. And Equinox uh-huh. Gym. Oh, yes. <laughs> there, there's an Equinox like right down the street from my work. It's disgusting. <laughs> Uh, I actually I parked it in the park. There's a there's a G550, um, the the one that's like taller, the four by four squared or whatever. I, it's a couple of years older, but it's the the one with the extra ride height and the wider axles and stuff. It's the, just the GLE. No, it's an, it's a G class. Oh, still still the G wagon. Okay. Yeah, but I forget what it's. It was, anyway, it's a little bit extra ridiculous, and that one was bright yellow. And I parked next to that. And I was like, well, this one's understated compared to that, even in purple. Um, yeah. I, I really wish they made, like, the original edition of this that has, like, 70 horsepower from a four-cylinder diesel and a vinyl interior. Or, I'm sorry, MBTEX. Uh, <laughs> and a, a manual, a manual transfer case and everything. Like, it probably wouldn't be any cheaper, but it would be much more in, in keeping. This was a military vehicle. This was designed for the, I think, the Israeli military. And uh, or it may have been designed no, for. No, the... I think it was for the Swiss. Okay, um, I forget well, how it whatever. went into production. It was, it was designed as a military vehicle, though. Yeah. Yeah, and there there was some infusion of cash from from something that actually they they decided to go into production with it. Um, I think Steyr makes it right still in the the yeah. Magna Steyr plant. That's yep. Uh, Graz, yeah. Austria. Right. Magna Steyr. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been around. It's been around for almost forty years now. I mean, I hope I'm as as expensive and well. Uh, I, I hope that people think I'm as valuable at forty as <laughs> this thing is. <laughs> anyway, I've sure run, they will. I've run out of superlatives. <laughs> Let's get back to the Cadillacs that uh, sort of landed with a flop. Yeah, well, uh, they Cadillac unveiled them a couple of days ago here in Detroit. Um, I was not at the event, but I, I talked to some people that were uh, yesterday. And uh, you know, Cadillac's V series cars, you know, over the last what fifteen years or so since the original CT, CTSV uh, debuted, you know, have built up quite a remarkable reputation. You know, as some really impressive sports sedans, you know, high performance sports sedans. The original CTSV used um, the uh, was it the LT2, I think, uh, you know, Corvette engine from the from the C5 or uh, the C uh, the C6 C5 C5 the I C, think the C5 Z06 uh, model, uh, and then the second generation CTSV 
got uh, the L, uh, the LSA, which was a variant of the supercharged uh, 6.2 liter V8 from the C6 ZR1 with uh, 590 horsepower, roughly. And then last time around, they bumped that up to 650 horsepower. You know, th these have been amazing cars. And then even the ATSV that came out, you know, the previous generation ATSV that's that's going away now, you know, that had a twin turbo V6 with 450 horsepower. These were really fast, you know, really, I mean, they were really serious competitors for, you know, the German M, M models and the AMGs and the um, Audi RSs. And then they brought out the CT4V and the CT5V. <laughs> what, you're not impressed by the CT4 with a uh, uh, Silverado engine in it? No, no. <laughs> um, uh, talking to some folks yesterday, you know, it, it's apparently what Cadillac has done is they are completely revamping the V lineup, and there will be there will actually be versions of the CT4 and CT5 that are significantly more powerful. But what these are is something more like what Cadillac used to call the V-Sport models. You know, they, if you look at, you know, AMG has their M, uh, AMG Sport models. Uh, BMW has the um, M-Sport. Uh, you know, Audi has the S-Line models, you know, that add some, you know, a little bit of styling flourish, maybe a little bit more power. But they're not the, you know, the, the full horsepower variants. I don't know what they they haven't Cadillac hasn't said what they're going to call the high powered variants of these things, but these two the CT4V and the CT5V you know Cadillac seem, can't seem to get figure out what their messaging is around these things and introducing these first before they bring out the high end versions just seems kind of weird because the the CT5V you know is only slightly more powerful than the standard CT5 with the with the V6 it's like i think about 350 horsepower no i think it's 300 it's 335 335 yeah yeah which is and weird then, like that's the 3 liter twin turbo and that's all it's making like yeah that's not a that's not any horsepower to sneeze at i guess but in in this day and age like i'd expect the twin turbo V6 to be making like 400 if you're going to call yeah. it a V, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at Lincoln, you know, the, the Continental and the MKZ with a, a three, the same size, three liter twin turbo V6, you know, they're putting out 400 horsepower from that engine. And, you know, the CT4V is only 320. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, well, it's, it's a, it's a 2.7 liter four cylinder turbo. Yeah. It's, it's the end, it's the, the base engine from the Silverado. Right, right. I see that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, like, I, I, Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how Cadillac is not – they've not been good brand stewards? This mm -hmm. is just another example of them crapping all over every little bit of credibility they have built over the last 15 years. You know, it, just calling these cars Vs and not delivering on the 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 promise or the, the implication, I guess, that, that like that V moniker has, has carried, you know? Right. It, it just, I don't know, these these cars, I guess too, like I should take a step back and try to wrap my head around what the CT5 and what the CT4 actually are, because they've revamped their lineup. The CT4 is basically an ATS replacement, right? Where the, the CT5 is the CTS replacement, or is that? Yeah, okay. um, it, it's actually, the, the the CT5 is actually a little bit smaller than the the CTS, uh, it's shorter overall. It's got a longer wheelbase, but it's shorter overall um, than the CTS was. And you know what they're doing is they're they're kind of 
trying to spread out the lineup a little bit more, get a little bit more of a gap between the CT6 and where the CTS was. Yep. Um, you know, this, they, they felt the CTS was too close to the CT6 before. So they're, they made the CT5 a little bit smaller. And then the, uh, the ATS and the CT4 are pretty close in size. But, you know, the, the real problem, you know, and, you know, the, the CT4 looks okay. I mean, it, it actually doesn't look that dramatically different from an ATS. But the, you know, the, the whole strategy, you know, or what, you know, trying to def, uh, explain what is the strategy is where they're having a problem. You know, they, have, <laughs> they haven't really, they haven't really been able to articulate what it is they want to do with these models. And, you know, why, why are they taking the V you know, what was this really high performance sports sedan and applying that branding to what is, you know, just a so-so sedan. I, I'm still trying to figure out, uh, why they have put the, the trouble I'm having with, with Cadillac is why are we even dealing with sedans right now? Where, where is all of your effort with, with crossovers? And I know we just saw the XT6, um, debut, but that also seemed underwhelming. I I don't know, like you said, with strategy, I don't know that they really have much of a strategy. They really seem like they're flailing and the cars themselves are probably fine. You know, the, like you read through the details and they're going to be good to drive. The ATS and the CTS are both very good to drive. Uh, they lack. And these are based on the same platform. Yeah. You know, it's just an updated version of the, the, um, uh... The, the Sigma? Omega? No. Sigma? So I think it's Sigma. Yeah. <laughs> Omega is the CT6. Yeah. It's Sigma. Um, it's it's an updated version of the same platform. And in fact, the, no, you know, it's the, the Alpha. It's, oh, that's alpha. right. It's Alpha. It's alpha. It was Sigma. Alpha. Sigma, Sigma was the old one. Yeah. Right. So it's Alpha. Yeah. yeah. And and the CT4 and the ATS both have, you know, they have the same wheelbase. It's the same 109 inch, 109.3 inch wheelbase. Um, the ATS is. Uh, couple of inches shorter overall so that the, the you got a little bit more overhang on the ct4 uh, so you know it's it should drive pretty similarly yeah they're gonna to, drive well the the problem that they had was that their interiors were crap for the money um and these are these are gonna be v models right so they're gonna still be they're gonna be more expensive than the base models and I, I i don't know at least they have super cruise available on both of them that's yeah <laughs> that's well, a plus. And, you know, but both of these, uh, you know, are are using GM's new um, electrical and electronic architecture on these, what they call their digital vehicle platform, which is going to enable things like over-the-air updates. It's going to, you know, uh, going forward, all of new GM's new vehicles are going to adopt this electrical architecture. Um, so it's going to mm -hmm. enable OTA updates and faster uh, data transfer speeds in the, in the internal vehicle network so they can do things like super cruise and, and other functionality on these vehicles. But I think to Dan's point, it's funny, I was thinking about this, like, are they going to be coming out with some kind of uh, the seat? What is the crossover that just came XT6? out before? Oh, XT, XT, you know, XT4. XT4. I'm yeah. so bad with these alphanumeric crap. Uh, uh, they keep changing <laughs> so, them too. The, so. Uh, the, so the XT4 you know, I, I drove that again this week at Heels and Wheels, and it's fine. It's That's the best I could say about it is that it's fine. But it would be really cool to trick that baby out 
with an engine like this. And then you've got that nice combination of utility of the STV that everybody wants with a really fun powertrain. And, and like, I would love to have that combination instead of just the sedan. And I get that, you know, Steve Carlisle has only been in for a year, but they've, they've got to move faster than what they're moving right now. I think. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, no doubt. And I think part of the problem is, you know, I think that under the, under Carlisle's predecessor, um, you know, they, you know, they, kind of went, they kind of went in the wrong direction. Um, yes. and you know, I, I think that with GM, um, you know, kind of trying to make a major pivot towards electrification in the coming years, you know, I, I have a feeling, I have this feeling that a lot of things that they were hoping to do have kind of gotten killed, you know, things that we haven't seen yet that, you know, that were supposed to happen about now. Uh, you know, I think a lot of plans are, are in flux right now and have been changed at the last minute. So we're, we're not seeing, we're probably not seeing some things that Johan probably wanted to do, uh, you know, just, you know, knowing him and given, you know, given what he is likely to have pushed for, uh, it, it's unfortunate that, you know, I think maybe they should have made the shift towards electrification sooner because now they're, you know, even with that, you know, they're not going to be, they're not going to have something out before at least 2021. Um, so between now and then they're not going to have any hybrids or plug-in hybrids or, or battery electric vehicles in the Cadillac lineup. Uh, while all of their competitor brands are all moving rapidly in that direction. Yeah. That seems like a really big blind spot. Even if just so, Hey, I want to get back to, those things that you hinted at, you know, maybe maybe speculate a little bit more about what Johan might have wanted to do that got killed. But also, like, instead of these two sort of underwhelming cars, just just grab the Bolt and take that hardware and stick it in a Cadillac. <laughs> at least, you know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, get out get out in front of it a little bit. Uh, that seems like a smarter move than I, I, cars that don't seem to have a point, and especially when sedan sales are so so far underwater compared to where they were. Yeah, I, I think I think a crossover based on the Bolt platform, if that had, had been available, if that was launching now or launching, you know, in 2019, I think that that probably would have been a wiser choice, um, you know, than some of what they're doing here. You know, maybe put off the, you know, the CT4, you know, until, until maybe um, sedan sales start to recover a little bit. And, you know, do a small electric crossover because, you know, that's something that, you know, if they had if they had that launching right now, they would have that segment largely to themselves because everything else, you know, in the premium electric crossover market, you know, is bigger than that. And, you know, so they, they would have had a unique offering and, you know, it could have been it could have been something very good for them. Well, it, I mean, the think about the popularity of like the Buick Encore, right? Yeah. And so you, you pick up on that. Um, the Encore is not the Bolt, but I am just trying to sort of fit but them in. But it's similar in size. Right, exactly. And it, it, it also was a lot more popular, I think, than they, they thought it was going to be because it's a sort of a premium compact crossover. And it, it really it, – it, people really sort of hit it off with that car. And, uh, you know, Cadillac – could have that and they could have that to themselves like you said you know and, and there's yeah because tesla won't have anything in there you know, <laughs> till next till at least next year with the with the model y yeah it, i don't think the model y is ever going to happen but that's that 
Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's like that. Well, so the ATS is just like the ATS and the CTS aren't selling. So why would you put any money into sort of replacing them when you could take those resources and, and go at the the areas where you could actually have some sales success? And it's like the XT6 just completely underwhelms me because all I see in that is a traverse. And I, I, I don't know. Uh, so this Cadillac seems to still not not really know where they're going. They don't, there's not a clear, uh, a clear mission and they don't stand for anything, um, distinctively, you know, like, you know, Audi is going to be a certain way, you know, that Mercedes and BMW, those are all sort of their identified competitors and even Lexus. Um, they're all sort of going to be the way they are. Uh, we know what to expect from those brands. And, and even these, these new V's, you know, I mean, the the kind of the one thing you could expect in the last few years from Cadillac was at least with the V models, that they were hardcore sports sedans, you know, very high performance vehicles, and these are not. You know, you know, if you if you're going to change, you know, if if you're going to launch, you know, this these types of models, you know, with at this kind of this level of performance, you should have given it a different name. You know, taking that that brand that it had at least developed some, um, you know, some, uh, some familiarity to customers and then putting that badge on these cars, it just, just seems foolish. Yeah, I agree. What do you think, Rebecca? I agree completely. I mean, I think that you have to, I think you have to respect these brands. And that's, that's been my claim for a while now. And I also think that even, you know, some will say, well, the product plan was, was already in place and this isn't anything they can do, but then upgrade the marketing, change what you can control, change, you know, do things like, you know, like with the XT4, bring, do something more exciting with your crossovers until you have additional product to put into that space. And, and Dan, as you said, whether you, you shove in the, the, the electric powertrain from the bolt or whatever you do, uh, just, just try and, and, and do it faster and do it better and change the things you can control right now. Yeah. I, when they hand us the reins to Cadillac, we're going to totally sort that out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's just move on to our next uh, our next topic, which um, I will stay in Europe. FCA and Renault have decided they want to try to merge, um, which they've they've sort of done well, in the past once what before. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, you know, I think they should put these companies together. They should call them American Motors, um, and. Uh, or Franco-American Motors? Yeah, Franco-American, yes. Well, look at the, uh, it could be worse. It could be Chef Boyardee Motors. Um, <laughs> is Francois Castang still around? Maybe he could come back um, and teach us how to no, make cars? No, I, b- I believe he is uh, off on a well-deserved retirement. Oh, good for him. Uh, but anyway, so FCA doesn't have any cars, really, that are newer than maybe 2005. <laughs> and uh, Renault has been aggressively looking at electrification and Europe in terms of a, a market is, I, I think it's, it's tough. There's, there's a lot of 
a lot of players and there's not a whole lot of profit and FCA is kind of sitting on a lot of profit with Jeep and, and Ram. So they're looking at it saying, Hey, there's, there's some, some ways we all can work together here. The, the corporate disgusting word is synergies. Uh, but they're, they're trying to figure out how to put the companies together and, um, get ahead of the, the wave of sort of forced consolidation. It's probably going to happen within the next 15 years in the auto auto world anyway, as just pressures mount. So, uh, it seems like it's something that could happen. The wild card is sort of like Nissan and Mitsubishi that are sort of tacked onto this too. So it's going to get messy. Rebecca, would you care to take this first? <laughs> sure. So yeah, it's going to get messy, but uh, I actually like this idea. And the reason I like it is because on a global basis, I think that, Renault and FCA at their mainstream brands serves the same customer. And this is a customer that is looking for a durable, reliable, value-oriented vehicle that is darn near close to an appliance sort of feel in that there, you know, and I'm not talking about the Maseratis and the Alphas of the world and such. I'm talking about that, the mainstream widespread consumer. And there's an opportunity for a tremendous amount of economies of scale here. And, you know, when you think about being able to buy all the same wire harnesses or all the same seat frames or things that you can make cosmetic improvements to that the consumer doesn't ever need to know or see or care about, circuit boards, think how expensive, how many circuit boards they could buy. And, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. If you know the the Daimler Chrysler merger failed because they were not serving the same customer and Mercedes-Benz buyers did not want to have their anything to do with a Chrysler or a Dodge buyer. Well, I think I, I yeah, that one also I think what brought that down was sort of management buy-in. Uh, the, for- yeah, well, the, exactly. But but that's because they weren't because the, the Mercedes people are sitting in the meeting saying we don't want this. It, they weren't serving the same. They weren't building a car for the same type of person. And I think that these brands could build cars for the same and do build cars for the same type of people. So that's my take on it. Yeah. I, I So with any merger, I'm concerned about. You know, they've pledged not to close any plants. We'll have to see how that works out. Um, and you've got very strong European unions um, that they're going to have to deal with in terms of a, a tie-up. And then there is like the – the so with FCA, the Germans came in and it was uh, – not FCA, with, with um, Daimler Chrysler. The Germans came in and they, they changed a lot of things. It, there was less of a, well, how do you do it, Chrysler? Let's look at that. It was, this is how we do it. You must change kind of thing. And that is so disruptive that uh, yes. how the merger is is carried out and what that ramp looks like is really going to determine how successful it is or isn't. And and so hopefully they understand that, you know, there's going to be this period where you're going to have to sort of let all the business units operate as they had. And you're going to have to carefully look at at streamlining. Because otherwise, she's just going to nuke it, and it's it's going to be bad. Well, uh, right, and they can look at where do they have opportunities 
for syn- for synergy, as you yeah. love that word. <laughs> I hate that word. Uh, but it's... <laughs> I, you, know, you know, but where where do they have commonality that they can share expenses, and then also the the same consumers. The same customer, I think a lot of them have a similar attitude towards future mobility. And so you can pace yourself on on how you're going to come out with electric vehicles, with autonomous vehicles, with some of this, where and how you're going to invest and the speed with which you need to invest in some of the future mobility that that is incredibly cripplingly expensive, but obligatory. So Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts on it too. Yeah, you know, I think this is a fascinating deal because, you know, from a product standpoint, there's actually remarkably little overlap between what FCA offers and what Renault and, you know, its various uh, like Renault and Dacia and, and its divisions Lada offer. And, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, they're, they're actually, for, from an overall product standpoint, they're fairly complementary. You know, FCA you know, particularly here in North America, you've got trucks and utilities and some minivans and, and, and then, you know, some, uh, the old, uh, you know, LHs that have been around forever, you know, they're old Mercedes models basically. Um, and then, you know, in Europe, you know, you've got some Fiats that are, they're aging. Um, you know, those could easily be replaced by, by, uh, Renault platforms, you know where where they could have a lot of combina- you know potential combination is on the powertrain side. You know Renault's done a lot of stuff with electrification. You know between you know th- as part of the the Renault Nissan alliance, you know Renault and Nissan have been leaders particularly in Europe and electrification. And you know uh, the Renault Zoe has been the you know the top selling EV in Europe for many years now. So. You know, I think that, that you know Renault can bring a lot in the electrification side to the to the partnership, um, and so I, th- I think there is potentially a lot of benefit there. Whether you know the the problem anytime you try to mesh you know two big companies is always culture, and it's hard to tell you know whether the the two corporate cultures will mesh. But and you know certainly that's the problem you had with Daimler and Chrysler. Is the cultures never meshed? You know that one one tried to grind the other one into dust, basically. Yeah, after they it, took it all their money, and it didn't work. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that there there's a lot of interesting potential here. The as you said, Rebecca, the wild card is Nissan, and to a lesser degree, Mitsubishi. Um, you know, Renault owns a, a fairly significant equity stake in Nissan. Nissan has a significantly smaller equity stake in Renault, um, you know, and you've got this alliance. And over the last, you know, eight ten years, the the two companies have moved towards commonizing a lot of their platforms. You know, whether they will continue with that after a merger, if it if it happens, is a big question. You know, I think that there's potential. You know, when you start to add Nissan into the mix, now you start to have a lot more overlap. With FC, with the FCA side, especially in North America, um, you know, and that was, I think, that was always one of the fundamental problems when Sergio Marchionne wanted to merge with GM, is there was so much product overlap between Chrysler, you know, the, the Chrysler brands, the North American Chrysler brands, and GM, and that one, you know, didn't really make as much sense. You know, I think here this could conceivably work a lot better. Um, you know, but how Nissan plays into it, you know, maybe what, maybe what ends up happening is, 
you know, if they merge, you know, maybe they decide that the merged Renault and FCA are large enough and have enough scale that maybe you don't need the alliance anymore, which would be, you know, maybe maybe you start to unwind that. I don't know. Uh, certainly, you know, Nissan has been unhappy with the alliance for, for quite a long time. Um, so it's it, there's a lot of unanswered questions at this point. And, you know, whatever happens, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, you know, we're talking well into 2020 uh, before anything is finalized. Yeah, on the surface, though. And it's really, okay. Uh, no, go ahead. No, please go. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, on the surface, it seems like, you know, Chrysler, the the cars on the Chrysler side are are old, uh, and, and Fiat kind of too. Um, and investing in new new car platforms, especially sedans and electrification, that's possibly smarter to just buy in. And so I can understand where you know we've said that hey, this this seems to make sense. Here it does seem to make sense, and and so uh, hopefully they can get it get it done. I I don't think that there's really any problem sharing a bunch of stuff across multiple brands. It's going to be a real swell name that they're going to have to come up with for all of it. But um, you know, I think we've seen that there's enough differentiation between uh, you know the the way they can tune stuff. You know, like the Jeep Renegade and the Fiat 500X are the same thing. They're mm. but they're they're different enough. Like if you didn't know that, you wouldn't know that. Uh, right. So we can make these things feel different no matter what hardware they're sitting on. Yeah, I, th- well, I think I just I think that there's there really I think this makes a lot of sense. And as Sam, as you said, there's not a lot of overlap with Renault and FCA. Obviously, with if you look at N- Nissan and Mitsubishi, that's a different discussion. But I think I do think that from a strategy standpoint, it's fascinating for Renault because you know, they have had those issues with Nissan. Obviously, the Mr. Gohan situation is sub-op as well. And they've got a lot of executive turmoil going on within Nissan. And so, you know, it's kind of, it's, I, th- I was on with uh, Richard Quest on CNN International. I compared it to sort of like sister wives. <laughs> like, there's this whole messy, <laughs> there's this whole messy situation. And Renault is like, hey, look, you know what? You are just too much of a problem for me. I want to go someplace else. So yeah, this the auto is industry very... version of big love. <laughs> exactly. So this is very, very interesting if you are Renault, because suddenly I feel like they've gotten a position of power that they didn't necessarily have within the Renault-Nissan alliance. That about sums it up. I don't, I don't have anything else to add to that. <laughs> uh, all right, let's hit one more topic before we, uh, we split. And the thing that's going to screw all of this up are tariffs. Because apparently... While we're on the cusp of signing the USMCA, um, the New Mexico-Canada-NAFTA 2.0 trade deal, um, we're going to impose up to 25% tariffs starting at 5% in June 10th. Um, If Mexico doesn't do something about – and they're not even illegal immigrants. They are uh, asylum seekers. This is is a topic that sort of crosses the line into the the politics side of things. But as we're seeing like – cars are political because there's such a big interconnected industry. Um, and, and the U S and Mexico work together to produce 
the automobiles that we buy here in the North American market uh, for a lot of different brands. And as we're sort of ramping up a trade war with China, a lot of uh, companies were shifting or looking at shifting production to Mexico because it's still lower cost than producing in the U.S. And they also have the workforce and the, the sort of the base there that uh, we don't necessarily have here currently in the States. You know, it's a global industry. Um, so new tariffs are going to completely screw that all up potentially if we can't make that work. And so I don't know what any kind of alliances or car prices or anything else are going to look like in six months. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the interesting things over the last 10, 15 years has been, you know, there was a lot of discussion of the, the idea that with the world, you know, with the world economy getting more globalized and a lot more interaction, you know, one, one of the, one of the advantages of global trade is that it makes us all more dependent on each other and would hopefully make us less likely to go to war, you know, and what we're seeing right now with all this trade nonsense is, you know, people who don't understand how the economy actually works are, you know, they're trying to do things that are going to get ridiculously complicated because of the the way that how um, how interdependent the economy has become. You know, I was reading something the other day, uh, or maybe it was this morning, that the the average car in the U.S. Uh, or or at some point in the the production life cycle of a car, it crosses the U.S. Mexico border eight times. On average, right. So it's going to pay a tariff every single time it crosses. And remember, a tariff nobody, is nobody knows, right? Nobody, yeah. nobody because the tariffs are not only on the vehicles but on the parts. And you know, so you've got you know some various subcomponents that get shipped one way or the other across the border, built into something else, and it gets shipped back across the other side of the border to a different plant. You know, to, further up the the supply chain, uh, and then back again. So. Nobody, nobody has any idea how this is actually going to end up working out, and who's going to. The, the the one thing you can probably say for certainty is that consumers will be the ones that pay for it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so well, first yeah. it's going to be the, that's one thing. The companies building the products, they're paying it, but they're they're going to pass it on to consumers. And the problem is that uh, a lot of the financial guys are saying, you know, there's there's really there's no margin for the automakers to actually pass this on to to consumers just given the the sort of price pressures yeah but they can't but they can't swallow. so i i had somebody contact me on rebecca drives and they sent me a very nasty note and one of the things but in their fury they provided some really in, interesting information <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things is that they're estimating it will cost 1.6 billion dollars if they were to build a factory in the states and then so it's 1.6 billion for the new factory and 1.2 billion dollars in sunk costs in Mexico, and I mean that kind of you, it's three billion dollars. And you're gonna just, you're gonna staff that factory with whom? Well, <laughs> you know? I mean, then you you bring it to the states, you know, and yeah. that's the crazy thing, right? And you're and you're staffing it with expensive workers as well. So, and you know, the 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 labor intensive stuff that's done in Mexico right now is what should stay in Mexico and make the 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 standard of living let's raise the standard of well, living in Mexico right and so th these are two different problems too like it's it's not a zero sum um, when yeah. you talk about a global economy uh, and the other thing is if you if you want to stem the tide of uh, immigration if that's 
really like you don't right. want people coming here from Mexico, then you kind of you have to engage in the practice of, of improving things in Mexico uh, so right. that people don't want to leave. And it's like that, none of this is really the problem that's happening right now. We don't have illegal immigrants uh, like putting pressure on the borders. We have asylum seekers putting pressure on the borders. They're not from Mexico. They're from Central America. So they're crossing Mexico. The problems in Central America is crap that we caused in the 80s when we were tinkering down there. Uh, so it's, it. yes, we have tipped over into the, the politics side of things. And I don't, I hope that we don't get nasty notes about this because we're, we're not really going in depth on it. But it's, yeah. it's also like, like everything's sort of interconnected. If you don't want asylum seekers coming here, you then you can't go and script their country and expect that they're not going to leave. Like, well, I think, and, and I think that, you know, it, it's regardless of, of the pressures on the border and who's putting pressures on the border, tariffs are not the answer. And that's the number one thing is especially tariffs with one of our, our trading partners from decades. I mean, we've been, we've been trading partners for decades yeah. and it's not that NAFTA shouldn't be revisited. It just shouldn't be revisited like this. It's uh, ridiculous. It's, it's so the, no matter what you do with a trade deal, Mexico is still going to be there. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not moving. Um, they're on our well, southern we're border. Not a flex, we're not a flexible industry. We are not an industry that can just say, oh, hey, let's just go build this someplace else. And it's just it's nobody's going to win with this ridiculous tariff thing. Well, it, yeah, I mean, there's too much there's too much infrastructure involved in manufacturing, you know, all the way up and down the supply chain to just instantaneously move it one place or another. Yeah. Right. Well, and and the, so the thing that the um, the auto industry hates and, and manufacturing in general, and then also to the financial side of things is the uncertainty. And like you're saying, Sam, yes. like we just don't know. And I probably because it hasn't been well thought out. It's a reactionary uh, move. And this, you know, you want to talk about how the economy and the, not really the economy as a whole, but the stock market indicators that everybody looks at to say the economy is booming, which is not exactly the same thing. Uh, if you want to stall that, <laughs> you're doing a pretty good job when you start throwing tariffs around at everyone because, uh, you know, tariffs are paid by U.S. citizens and consumers, not not by Mexico. Mexico's not paying them. China's not paying them. Um, it's making the it's goods. It's basically a tax. Yeah, it, it's it's more expensive for for us, and it, it does have the effect of sort of putting a chilling effect on uh, those purchases, right? So, yes, if you want to adjust consumer behavior, it's a it's a tool, but it's not exactly the best tool to be using, and it's certainly not um, going to sway uh, China or Mexico so much when you know they're not really seeing any any economic hit from it, and there's there's not really a whole lot stopping. Mexico from working with China that has a very large population of consumers as well. So you're not, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of variables here and, and you start to kick the bee's nest and get stung. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, Nariman Baravesh uh, from IHS market who I used to work with is he's an amazing economist and he and I were talking, this was last year when the tariffs discussion was embroiled as well. And, you know, he just said, this is, it's one of the worst things that you can do to an economy. It's basically a tax on consumers. It's just going to raise prices. It's, it's not going to solve any problems. 
that you think it's going to solve. And it's just, it's a terrible, terrible idea. It would be, it would be one thing if there were, you know, if there was dumping going on and there had been in, in steel, um, back a few years ago, there was, there was, uh, steel dumping from China, um, that I did, I think they did use tariffs to sort of curtail that. Um, but we don't have replacements for those factories here domestically. We're, we, you know, we're, we're not an isolationist manufacturing country any longer. Uh, so that it's going to hurt us. And I, we've, we've said enough about it to get everybody riled up. So I'm going to stop, but, uh, I don't know, Sam, do you have any, any sort of like sort of wrap ups on that? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's important. I, I will say this. This is – we are not discussing this as a political matter. We are discussing this as an industry issue. And the, and the bottom line is the industry issue is that this is not going to help the industry and it's only going to hurt the industry and the people that work there and the people that are employed by this industry. There. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Prices are going to go up, sales are going to go down, and a lot of people are going to end up getting laid off. Exactly. And the, the, pe- that's the, pe- the people that wants. were the people that were nominally supposed to be helped by this will end up losing their jobs. That's been yes. a pattern. <laughs> I will just lay that out there. And I think Very with nice. that, um, unless we've got <laughs> anything else to talk about, uh, there was a question, Sam. Is this a fresh question, or is this one that was just? Uh, uh, it was one that we had that we didn't get to uh, previously uh, from uh, John Wilson on Twitter. Um, let's see, what are the pros and cons of modern turbocharged powertrains? For example, Honda's Honda Civic's 1.5 liter turbo has similar horsepower and torque to Mazda 3's 2.5 liter naturally aspirated. How would you pick between the two? Fuel efficiency, reliability, fun. Um, in terms of you know, fuel efficiency is a, a tough one when you start looking at these turbos. It depends a lot on how you drive them. Uh, you know, one of the advantages, you know, modern turbocharged engines tend to have direct fuel injection, uh, which mitigates a lot of the issues we've had in the past with turbocharged engines. Uh, you know, because it when you uh, inject the fuel directly into the cylinder, it has a charge cooling effect, so you, it tends to avoid knock and things like that. So you can run higher compression which makes the engine more efficient um, and also uh, improves low and low and mid range torque uh, and really improves the drivability. Uh, you know, I have, we happen to own uh, a Honda Civic with the 1.5 turbo, very happy with it. Um, you know, the 2.5, you know, if you look at the, the peak power and torque numbers, they're comparable. Um, but the, the Mazda engine has less low and mid range torque than the the turbo does so you're going to give off some of that on the other hand if you drive it hard and you you're into the boost all the time you're then you start to see some degradation in fuel economy uh because it does it is going to use more fuel in that case and so a lot of times they you know a larger displacement naturally aspirated in real world driving depending on what your driving style is can end up giving you better fuel economy so it depends a lot on how you use it, uh, but overall, you know, obviously a turbo is a more complex engine. There's more things to potentially go wrong, um, you know. And uh, but you know, mo- for the most part, modern turbos are, uh, you know, have have gotten pretty good as far as durability and reliability. They've overcome a lot of the issues we had back in the early days in the the 80s and the and the early 90s. Yeah, turbos are definitely. Um 
more reliable than they used to be. the The worst I've had with turbos is just some some oil leaks that you can easily solve. Um, they're they're not expensive time bombs like they once were. Uh, I have found them to be rather thirsty the way I drive. <laughs> like I said, it's it all comes down to you know to technique. Yeah. You know, to, on, on what your what your behavior is. I what? mean, if you if you drive it you know hard, uh, it will use more fuel. Yeah, the, and the modern turbos are great. They have uh, very very flat torque curves, so basically you get max torque at low RPM and it just stays there, uh, which is not something that used to be the case. You know, turbos used to have a lot of lag and and you wouldn't get any appreciable boost until you you got up there on the tack so they're a lot different now than they used to be i'd have no problem buying a turbo uh engine i just you know you you do have to understand if you're if you're going to beat the hell out of it all the time it's gonna it's gonna drink like a three liter not like a 1.5 yeah (laughs) um all right so i hope we've helped him make a purchase decision uh from there i did we've done a pretty solid podcast we covered all the bases we should get some some good feedback, I hope. <laughs> and by good, we mean positive. Yes. Yeah. And if you have positive things to say about the show, let us know. And also, you know, give us a rating somewhere on, on iTunes or, you know, wherever wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. And you uh, tell your friends about going, it. Did you say iTunes is going away? Uh, probably. That's that's the rumor. You know, I, iTunes, no, as we've known it, is, is yes. probably going away. Uh, well, they'll... I think tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow is the keynote at uh, the Apple Worldwide Development Co- Developers Conference, and they'll they'll be making some announcements. Um, but it'll it'll be replaced by a dedicated podcast app, much like oh, okay. much as they have on the iPhone. Okay, good. That makes me so feel they're, better. They're they're taking you know, the, the, think of iTunes as kind of the the uh, um, computer equivalent of the automotive electrical system over the last 30 years <laughs> where we've just, we've just, every time we want a new feature, Oh, we'll just throw it in iTunes, you know, and, or, you know, we'll just throw another ECU in the car. And, you know, next thing you know, you got a hundred electronic control units in the car <laughs> and iTunes is kind of like that. You know, they just yeah. throw, throw it in the, throw it in iTunes. And so now they're going to try and break it back up again and, and, you know, provide dedicated functions. Yeah. Okay. That makes you feel It'll be better. Thank you. It'll be better. iTunes was never good. <laughs> Whatever well, they back do. In the, back, in, back in the very early days, you know, in like 2001, 2002, when they first started, when they you know took sound, they bought Sound Jam and turned it into iTunes. You know, it was probably the best, you know, music management tool at the time. It was, yeah. You know, it was good for for what it was, and it, you know, it, but it had you know very limited functionality, but it did it very well. And then they added more stuff to it and more stuff to it. Well, I've already said that part. Yeah. So. And the, the UI <laughs> never got better. It always no. got worse. So Yeah. Oh, good. We'll have something to complain about next time. Um, we'll, we should, we'll be back sooner than this time uh, with another podcast. So in the meantime, let us know how we did, and, and we'll see everybody soon. All right. See ya. Cheers. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.